Good morning, everybody. My name is Jordan Rice, one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Very grateful you guys, for you guys to be with us this wonderful Father's Day. Shout out to all the fathers in the building. Uh, very grateful for you guys. Uh, one of the things that I've learned the most about being uh, in a diverse community is the different approach that parents take in parenting. Uh, and I've had some time to reflect on my own father and how he has raised me from a boy to a man. And my dad had a, a very, uh, not excessive, but certainly effective way of discipline. And uh, I am grateful for, for that. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever had a situation in your life where the best way that you can describe it is that God was like all in the midst. Uh, a Christian-y way of saying it is that I saw God's hand in the situation. I can only think of a, a handful of times in my life that I can look back and say God's hand and God was all in the mix of that situation. Uh, one of those times was in college. I've mentioned before uh, a friend of mine who helped me when I was really early in the faith, uh, when I really didn't know uh, the difference between a lot of things and this guy took me to church and gave me my first study Bible and uh, helped explain, really, the foundations of Christianity to me. And he and I had started to become friends. And uh, as we became friends, one day I asked him, hey, bro, how are, how are you doing? Uh, up to that point, it was like a three-month monologue of me just talking, uh, which is similar to my marriage now. And um, he told me that, hey, I'm actually really struggling uh, because my roommate has these naked pictures of women all over his wall. And I'm really trying to live right. Um, and he had struggled with some stuff before. And he says, every single morning, the first thing I see are these disgusting pictures on the wall. And it's dragging me to a really dark place. Now, he was in a tough situation because had it just been me, I would have ripped that joint down. And it would, we would have dealt with it a different way. But he's a better guy than I was. And uh, he's asked his roommate, hey, can you take those posters down? His roommate, not joking around, looked at him and said, hey, if your faith in God with Jesus is so strong, then these posters are just a test, and you'll be able to survive past them. Now, he was really struggling with that, and the guy was a bully. He knew my friend was not the type of person to make too much of a scene. And my friend, I really felt bad for the dude because he really had no place to turn. If he ripped them down, he would have to deal with a roommate. And if he left them up, then he'd have to deal with these images just bombarding his mind. A couple of days later, the roommate goes to a party. Um, shout out to all my Morgan State people uh, on campus. And he gets mixed up on campus with some people who are actually tough. And uh, he gets chased out of the party and realizes that they are now a group of people on campus looking for him. Our, our school was about 5,000 people, but uh, I happened to know these guys really well, and he knew that I knew them. So this is pre-cell phones, millennials cover your ears. He called my, my dorm phone and out of breath and begging me, yo, Rice, uh, these guys from Philly, um, I got mixed up in the party, and I know you know them. Is there any way that you could go and take care of the situation? If any way you could go and tell them to squash it and vouch for me and tell them that I'm a good dude and all these different things, and it just happened to be one of those moments where just the right words come to your mouth at just the right time. And I said, hey, as soon as my friend tells me those posters are down, I'll go right over there and take care of it. <laughs> 19 seconds later, <laughs> my friend called me like bewildered and laughing and say, hey, I have no idea what just happened. All I know is that my roommate ripped the posters down 
threw them in a garbage can, pledged to me that they would never come back up ever again, and please, would I call you and tell you that the posters are down? Now, it was one of those situations where someone was really weak, and I, I really saw God's hand all in the mix. Now, I don't know what the odds are for all of the circumstances to line up in such a way that everything happened in just that succession uh, for, for God's hand to show up. But I, I got a real picture that day that if you really want to see God's hand shining through, like for real, for real, if you really want to see God, you should almost look for the most insignificant situation. You should almost look for the most helpless person, and there you will find a prime place for God to work. Uh, you see this principle all throughout Scripture that God doesn't necessarily show up in the strong, but he shows up in the life of the weak. And it's almost that God prefers to show up in weakness. When, the, when God called the children of Israel, uh, it says that in Deuteronomy 7 and 7, that the Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. And some translations say you were the most insignificant of all people. All throughout Scripture, it's almost as if God prefers to work through weakness. And this is just not with God's calling of the nation of Israel. This is also how God has worked individually in the life of people who have followed him. There's one story in Scripture that one of these days we're going to spend more time unpacking the character. But Peter is a fascinating man, a fascinating character in the Bible, filled with really high highs and simultaneously really low lows. Peter was one of these really brash and confident people. And one day, right before Jesus was about to get crucified, he looks at Jesus and says in Matthew 26, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Before the next morning, Peter had denied Jesus over and over and over again. And the gospel writer Luke gives the account of what Peter does after he disappoints Jesus. And more importantly, in some ways, after he disappoints himself, it says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. I don't know if you've ever felt a sting, the real sting of doing something that you said you would never do. When you looked yourself in the mirror and said, I will never, ever do that, and that is the very thing that you find yourself doing. That is a particular kind of devastation. Not more than two months had passed. Fifty days later, this same Peter, who was the failure, the one who went away and wept bitterly, encounters the God of grace, Jesus, who restores him. And this dude, Peter, preaches a sermon and 3,000 people become Christians that day. God was with him. God was with the one, not who had the spotless record, but the one who had failed. It's almost as if God prefers to work through weakness. Not just with Peter and the nation of Israel, but God and how God arrived to this world in Jesus. He didn't come like people were expecting him to come. Uh, for thousands of years, Israel was promised a Savior, this Messiah, the one that would come and bring salvation to Israel, and people were expecting a mighty king, a warrior. But instead, God shows up in a baby from Nazareth, the Staten Island of the Middle East, to a teen mom named Mary, to a carpenter of a father who recruits, in turn, a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, and they start a movement in this world unseen before or since. It's almost as if God prefers to work the weakness. Now, Charles Spurgeon once said that God does not need your strength. He has more than enough power of his own. He asks for your weakness. 
He has none of that himself. And he is longing, therefore, to take your weakness and use it as the instrument in his own mighty hand. Will you not yield your weakness to him and receive his strength? Now, there's probably not a better story in Scripture where you see this principle more clearly than the story of Gideon that Portia just read today. The story of Gideon is a really fascinating scripture. Uh, Let me catch you guys up a little bit to the story where we are, uh, what we just read from. Uh, Gideon is uh, a part of the nation of Israel, and they are surrounded by two enemies, the Amalekites and the Midianites. Now, the Midianites uh, had attacked them for years and years and years, and they spent years terrorizing the entire nation of Israel. And they were really afraid of them. And over and over again, they cried out to God for help, for God to help them to overcome this enemy. And as they cried out to God to overcome this enemy, an angel appears to Gideon, and finally, help has arrived. But it doesn't arrive in the package in the way that they thought it was going to help. Um, after they cried out for help, we see God's people ask, and it says, the Lord said to um, Gideon in verse 2 of this, of this story, we're going to focus in on this one, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them. Or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, my own strength has saved me. Here's what happens. God, people are crying out to God, praying, God, we need help. We need deliverance. And they start out with this army of 32,000 people. And it looks like it could be a fair fight. And maybe with the right strategy, they might be able to do it on their own. And God intentionally moves in such a way to remove from them any semblance of strength that they might go in there with, and they have to rely on God's word that God is going to be with them. It's almost as if that when God prefers to move in our life, he prefers to move in our weakness and not in our strength. Now, if you're like me, uh, the word weak is not something that you want to be associated with. Uh, that's not how you want to be characterized. You don't, nobody wants their faith to be weak. Nobody wants their character to be weak. Nobody wants Uh, anything about them to be weak. Weakness is not something that we want. And um, and unintentionally, we do a lot of things to try to overcompensate for our our own weaknesses. Now, here's what I know to be true about me that might also be true about you. In the way that I live my life, I would always, always, always try to move away from uncertainty, vulnerability, and dependence. And that's what weakness brings. Weakness brings with it uncertainty. Weakness brings with it uh, uh, dependence, where you have to depend on God and other people, and weakness brings with it uh, uh, vulnerability. Now, if you give me the choice, I will always choose certainty over uncertainty. Give me the choice 10 times out of 10, I'm always going to choose certainty over uncertainty. And if I'm walking down a path where I can chart the course for myself and I know exactly what's going to happen, give me that, please. But the nature of faith is not one where you and I get to choose a path full of certainty. But rather, over and over again throughout Scripture, you see God calling people to uncertainty. Uh, There's a Scripture in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You might have seen this on some uh, administrator's desk somewhere. Uh, But it's such a good Scripture that I think you and I should uh, spend some time looking at it. Uh, It says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and do not lean, do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. You and I would prefer certainty. We would prefer to not have to lean on God. But the path that God calls us to is never the one full of certainty, but of uncertainty. 
not only that, but the second thing that's true about me that might be true about you is I would always prefer to be in a position of power over being in a position of vulnerability. I would love to always be in a position of power where I didn't have to rely on people, and if I'm being completely honest, where I didn't have to rely on God. Here's what's so interesting about the Gideon story. God was putting Gideon in a position that unless God showed up, he was going to be in a significantly worse position than when he started. God calls us over and over again, not to being in power, but to positions of vulnerability. Uh, one of the best things that's happened to me uh, in the last couple of months uh, is that for, um, I started working also with a church planting organization called Orchard Group. And for the first time in really my adult life, um, I got a boss, uh, besides when I got married, and that's a whole other conversation. Up until when I practiced law, I, I set my own calendar, I had my own schedule, and I basically operated uh, however I wanted to operate. And when I became the lead pastor here, uh, I have people that I'm accountable to, people that can fire me. Uh, but in a lot of ways, I set my own schedule, and I get to have a, a, a big say in how things uh, go around here. But when I got this job at Orchard Group, I realized, like, yo, the boss could just call me and say, hey, yeah, I'm just not too thrilled with the way things are working out. Uh, we're going to go in a different direction. And that's a, a pretty vulnerable feeling. And I realized that that's, that's the way I was in, internalizing it, because whenever he would send me an assignment to do, I would just, like, hand Jessica the kids. I would just toss one and just say, hey, I got to do this thing. I got to do this assignment because it really did feel vulnerable. In the life of a person who puts their faith in God, in the life of a person who follows Jesus, God will always put you in positions of vulnerability, not those of power, which makes it part of the travesty that our nation and Christianity in America is known so much for seeking to be powerful instead of uh, 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 identifying with those who are vulnerable. There's a scripture in the New Testament where Jesus is talking to his disciples in Matthew 10. And he says, look, I'm sending you out like a sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves, because people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog, which is beat, uh, flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. But when they hand you over, don't worry about how or what you should speak. For you will be given what to say in that hour, because you are not speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. We would always prefer being powerful, but embracing vulnerability and weakness is actually what God calls for. The third one is really big. Uh, I would always prefer being independent over being dependent. Uh, it's hardwired in us ever since we were children. Every major milestone in your life is a, is a stage of you leaving dependence to greater degrees of independence. So at first you have to be carried all the time, then you can walk, then you can take yourself to the bathroom, then you can do more and more things. Your life is a series of milestones where you have gone from dependence to independence. And the life of a Christian is to go from dependence to independence, back to dependence on God. For God to reduce Gideon's army from 32,000 to 300 people, God was intentionally putting Gideon in a position where he would be dependent. Now, dependent is a word and a concept that essentially means that you allow yourself to put your weight on it to the degree that if that fails you, you will also fail. So every one of you right now is dependent on that chair beneath you to the extent that if that chair were to fail you, you would bear the bruises and the scarring of having that chair fail you. That's what dependence looks like. 
Now, in our life, I would hate to say how many times in my own life I don't, I know that I am not putting the weight of my life on God in such a way that if God were to not show up, that I would fall as a result. Now, there's a few things in this text that really stick out, and I think we could just take away from it. And the first thing is that one of the tools that God uses to create reliance on him is weakness. One of the tools that is active and present in God's tool belt for you to create reliance, to create relationship, is weakness, not strength. Verse 2, uh, uh, 1 and 2, it says, Early in the morning, uh, Gideon and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in a valley near the hill of Moray. Uh, really quick, uh, when the scripture says that the camp of Midian was north of them, it means that the enemy was really, really close at this point. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now, this is a fascinating portion of scripture because God is allowing, uh, God is saying that if you were to go, Gideon, in your full strength, if you were to go with everything in your arsenal, the biggest danger, a bigger danger than the country that's been terrorizing you for the last decade that's, su that's super close to you, a bigger danger than that is you believing that you can navigate this without me. A bigger danger is you starting to believe that you have done this on your own strength. Now, I've wrestled with this scripture all this week and thinking through God, how is that a bigger danger than the apparent enemy that is staring them in the face? And here's what I've deduced from this story and all throughout scripture. Uh, what we want is the resolution of situations. What God is after is the resolution of a relationship. And God knows that if I allow you to move in this way, this is going to destroy what I'm trying to create inside of you. And one of the tools that God uses to create reliance on him is weakness. Now the line that the, uh, the scripture uses is this right here, that my own blank or my own strength is what it says in the scripture has saved me. And if we're being honest, even though none of us in here, for the most part, are in the military and are facing uh, military battles and strategy, all of us are in danger of saying this line right here, filling in something in the blank that my own blank has saved me. Now, saved is a kind of a Christian-y word. Uh, when I first became a Christian, all I knew was that I was super saved, and I wasn't in the club no more. And... Uh, to, to be saved and has a lot of different connotations throughout Scripture, uh, but one of the ways that I think it should be used and it's applicable in this text is it, it means fixed, that my own blank has fixed the situation, that this thing that I can, this is a thing that I've relied on that has brought me to the desired outcome that I wanted. And God was actively working to prohibit them from coming to any other conclusion than that. Now, you might not be in the military or have any battles ahead of you, but all of us face the danger of putting something else in that box other than God. When I first became a Christian, for me, it was my own hard work and diligence. And I was uh, a pretty intolerable person to be around. I, was, uh, I had memorized portions and portions and portions of Scripture, not so I could grow closer to God, but so I can argue with people on campus. And I, was, I had no understanding of what it means to be saved by faith through grace. No concept of Jesus 
being a better savior than I am a sinner, no concept of God never leaving me or forsaking me. All I knew was that if I work really, 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 really hard, then maybe, just maybe, I'll be fine in the outcome, in the, in the end. Now, in my own personal life, I've seen the shortcomings of that season where I hit places in my life where my hard work could not take me any further. And I realized that Jesus is a better savior than I am a sinner. Early on in my walk, I approached Jesus as this divine guidance counselor that I would go into his office once a week, show him my progress report, and then Jesus would give me some checks and some fruit snacks, and I would go on my way just to come back in the next week. So many people all throughout Scripture approached God like that. As a matter of fact, Jesus' greatest enemies, the Pharisees, this was what they believed, that my own moral purity is what saves me. Throughout the Old Testament, they, Scripture tells us what our moral purity is like. Uh, they use a, a phrase that says that our own, our best efforts are like filthy rags. And if you and I try to put our, our diligence in the box of saving us, then we are in for a long and hard battle ahead. Now, it's not just that you and I could believe that it's our own moral efforts. And, um, and I should say this real quick. I just want to make sure that I'm being clear. Uh, God is never opposed to effort. He's always opposed to earning. God is never opposed to your efforts. He is always opposed to you feeling like those efforts have now earned you something. There is absolutely nothing my son can do, my sons can do to be more my son. But there is a lot of stuff that I'm wanting them to do. The same thing is very true for you. There is not, God is not opposed to your effort. God is not opposed to our, our diligence. But God is opposed to thinking that our diligence has saved us. Uh, another thing that a lot of people put their real reliance on to keep it all the way live is money. Now, one of the best ways that you can tell that money is something that you feel is, like, is going to fix you is how the way you spend it, how you save it, how you give it. Most of the times, the way we relate to money never puts us in a situation where we are having to be vulnerable, where we're having to be dependent, and where things are uncertain. Rather, we give just enough to not feel guilty, and don't worry, we're not going to send the offering baskets around again today. We give just enough to not feel guilty, but it doesn't lead us to a place where we're feeling vulnerable. Now, this is not a, uh, a call for you guys to give your rent money to Renaissance, uh, pay your rent, pay your bills, save some, invest wisely, do all these wonderful things, but I would question, uh, how, it is, how is it, what would, your, what would your bank account show us how you process God in faith? What would it show us about what your priorities are? Have you ever been in a situation financially where you're financially vulnerable because of your generosity towards the church or something else? Most of the time, we're not. We, like to prefer, we prefer certainty and independence, so we don't really give, not to the point to where we could really be generous sometimes. And while I've offended most people in here, I might as well keep on going. Uh, another way that a lot of people will fill in that blank is with relationships that my own marriage has fixed me, or my kids will, will, will fix me. Now, I've seen a lot of different things, both as a family court attorney and as a pastor, and I've seen so many people, so many people destroy their children because they are hoping that their kids become so successful and wildly amazing in every single endeavor because deep down inside, whether they admit it or not, they're hoping that their kids make them feel significant. On their own, they don't feel significant. Now, as a parent, I definitely get the pressure um, whenever parents are comparing things 
about their kids. I usually just lie. I say, yeah, Jameson did that like six months ago. He's been doing that. He speaks German. He's amazing. <laughs> but I feel the pressure of wanting my kid to really be significant and do significant things. If you're not careful, you'll put weight on your kids that they were never intended to bear. And in the process, you might crush them. Now, it's not just kids, but it's also in dating and marriage relationships. Uh, so many married couples that I see really have intense battles and intense debates about sometimes the most insignificant of things. And here's what is behind all of that. They don't want their spouse to have an ounce of weakness, and they will not tolerate anything but greatness in their spouse because they are looking to their spouse to be significant, to fix them. Deep down inside, they have never spent one second loving their spouse. They've only loved an idealized version of what they wish they were. And as a result, they end up crushing both themselves and the spouse because nobody was meant to bear the weight of your identity. Now, oftentimes, this is extremely true for us. My single friends, my single people, um, uh, in your mind, you might be thinking that once I get this, fill in the blank, everything is going to make sense. And if you fill in that blank with a person, you are going to put a weight on, that, on, on him or her that they were never intended to carry. It's going to crush both you and them. Now, I want to be really clear, absolutely nothing is wrong with wanting to be married, with wanting to have kids, with wanting a good family, with wanting good relationships with friends or parents or whatever. All of these are, are, are good things. Uh, if you are wanting to be married or wanting God to show up in your life, come on down to the altar after service. We'll put some oil on your forehead and we'll pray. True story, I was uh, at this one office uh, for church planting uh, a couple of weeks before we got ready to start with like uh, training for so I could plant res Renaissance. And up to this point, I had not met Jessica and we were ending the meeting and they said, hey, well, Pastor Jordan, what would you like us to pray for you for? And I gave a bunch of Christian-y answers, like, yeah, pray for clarity. Pray for God's spirit to, like, to indwell my, my innermost. And, and the guy who prayed for me said, Lord, send Jordan a wife. Would you send him a wife? True story, three weeks later, I met Jessica. Parenthetically, let me just say this. You are one encounter away from your life changing permanently for the good. You are one yes away from everything that you knew being upended for the good. So don't lose faith if that's what you're praying for. But please, please, please do not put a weight on that person that they were never intended to carry. Now, most of us in this room uh, would never want uncertainty and dependence and vulnerability, but that's what God uses in a lot of ways to create reliance on him. Uh, the second thing we see in this text is that the things that we place faith in to fix us, they are not harmless or neutral. They are actively a work, working against you and your relationship with God. Let me say that again. The things other than God that we place our faith in to fix us, to make us feel significant, to make us feel secure, they are not harmless. They are not neutral. They are actively working against you and your relationship with God. You see this very clearly in the scripture. The Lord says to Gideon, you have too many men, I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or else Israel would boast against me. The word here and the warning here is not that if you believe in your own strength, then you might have a, a little misunderstanding about how the situation went down. 
God is speaking here saying, listen, if I let you go in full strength, you're going to end up boasting against me. Now, in the economy and in the way that God works, you can never have God and money, for example, as one and one A. Jesus tells us this much, as, uh, this much in Scripture. He says, you can, no man can have two masters. You will love one and you will hate the other one. Nobody can serve two masters. You will pick one that will have the attention of your eyes. You will pick one that will make you feel secure. You will pick one that you think can fix you, and then you'll start to hate the other one. And here's what God is telling them in the scripture. If I let you, if I let you go down the road of the delusion that you have saved yourself, it's going to actively work against you. Now, let me step off my high horse for a second uh, and just say and confess that there are a number of ways that I see in myself over and over and over again that I trust not on God, but I trust in what I can see on paper. I trust on uh, the, the, the metrics. Uh, I trust and see how good of a job I'm doing as a pastor. I, I trust in so many other things other than God, and I see those things warring against my soul. Usually what happens is I start to see issues that are arising that I don't necessarily know how to fix. And what happens is I don't know how to fix them, and I start to worry. And instead of going to God and praying, since I'm hoping for these things to fix me, the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning, pull out my phone, check my email, and get to work. I don't even stop to pray. Here's what they're doing in my life. They're actively working to deconstruct my, and erode my trust and relationship with God and try to make and, and fix a situation as opposed to fixing and nourishing and encouraging my relationship with God. And when Scripture here warns us that if God were to give the Israelites this, then it would actually lead to them boasting against God. It's saying, you cannot serve two masters. You will love one and you will hate the other. Now, hate in, throughout the biblical times didn't mean what uh, we mean when we say the word hate. When I say hate, I mean I hate Tom Brady. That's what I mean when I say hate. When Scripture means, uses the word hate, it doesn't speak about the emotional energy behind a bad feeling, but rather the allegiance uh, that you have to one thing. This is why Jesus tells his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him, for, you know, he must hate his father, mother, sister, brother, yea, even his own life, and then come after me and follow me. Was Jesus saying that you should hate people? Of course not. Jesus is saying that in comparison to your allegiance to even yourself, it should look like hatred. When, speak, when Scripture speaks about hatred, it's not about the emotional thing, but rather the allegiance to it. And Jesus is telling us very clearly in life, you cannot have two masters. You will love one, and you will have no allegiance to the other. This is really huge as we uh, think through all throughout Scripture what God has said to his people. Uh, this is not just in uh, Gideon, uh, but in Deuteronomy 8, we see this really powerfully. It says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I am giving you today. When you eat and when you're full and build beautiful houses to live in and your herds and your flocks grow large and your silver and gold multiply and everything else that you have increases. Here's what the scripture is saying. When everything in your life is Gucci, when your credit score is on the way up and things are looking good, when you have the apartment, when you have the relationships, when you have everything else, here's what it's saying. Be careful that your heart doesn't become proud and you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. He brought you out 
he brought water out of the flint rock for you. He fed you in the wilderness with manna, which your fathers had not known, in order to humble and test you, so that in the end he might cause you to prosper. You may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. In order to confirm his covenant, he swore to your fathers as it is today. If you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods to serve them and bow down and worship to them, I testify, you against, I testify against you today that you will perish. Like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. As I was reading through these scriptures in preparation for today, I was thinking, God, that's some pretty harsh language that unless, unless I follow you, uh, I'm going to perish. Or in the words of Cat Williams, you mean I'm going to die? It's a, uh, I'm not going to, six people who got that, it's really funny. I'm not advocating you to watch that uh, special, but it is funny. And it, I was wondering, God, why is it that, why is it that extreme? Why is it that severe that unless we follow you, we're going to die? And here's what I believe to be true. Uh, Tim Keller once said that our idols, the things that we actually place our faith in, they always, always, always overpromise, and they always simultaneously underdeliver. And if you put your faith in something that overpromises and underdelivers, you're going to be in for a world of hurt. So God calls us away from these things and shows us that the things that we're putting our faith in, they're not just neutral. They're not just harmless. They're actively working to give you a greater confidence in something that's less stable. The last thing we see in the scripture from verse 8 is that the best thing that we could do, the best thing that you can do today, the best thing that you can do this week, the best thing that you can do this month is to take steps embracing our weakness and trusting in God. The best thing that you can do, and you might not be at a position in life right now where you have a, a, you're in the valley of decision, as the old saints would say, but when you do hit this place, the best thing you could do is take steps embracing our weakness and trusting in God. Uh, we were in teaching team this week, and uh, Aswan said something that was like remarkable. He was like, yo, I can't believe Gideon actually did it. And here's what we see in verse 8. It says, so Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home but kept the 300 and took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Here's what Gideon knew that I think he would preach to us today. He knew that in the arithmetic of heaven, my little bit plus God is always more than enough. In the arithmetic and the mathematics of heaven, my little put in the hands of Jesus, put in the hands of God is always more than enough. So it's a safer place to be obedient to God with absolutely no certainty, being completely vulnerable, and being fully dependent than it is to have everything in front of your face that seems like it's going to protect you and seems like it's going to make sense. Our little bit put in the hands of Jesus is always more than enough. Now, this is very true for us, uh, both in the way that you and I relate to God and also how you and I grow in our faith and how we experience God on a day-to-day -day basis. One of the, the biggest obstacles that I see in a lot of people who are new to church, and this might be you, you might be new and you might be thinking, man, how am I going to take this next step? The biggest obstacle that I see over and over again is that people see their weakness, they see their lack of discipline, and they say, I'll never be able to follow Jesus until I can fix these six things. And what they're missing is that your little bit put in the hands of Jesus is always more than enough. 
when Jesus was speaking to a man named Nicodemus uh, in John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I have to do to in inherit eternal life? Jesus looks at him and says, marvel not what I say to you, you must be born again. Now, born again is another one of those phrases that doesn't make too much sense outside of Christian circles, uh, but essentially what Jesus was telling Nicodemus was this, when someone is born, uh, basically, uh, their entire, they are starting with a completely blank slate. And when he, Jesus was telling the Pharisees that you need to be born again, he's essentially telling them that nothing that you've ever done before this, not one thing that you have ever done before this will matter. The only thing that will matter is that the life is now that uh, your parents have given you life and that you are now born and existing in this world. So to tell the Pharisees who are obsessed with rules, you have to be born again, he's saying, if you really want to inherit eternal life, you need to have a version of faith that does not rely on your own efforts. This is why scripture like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 are so clutch. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one, here's the word again, no one can boast. No one can take pride in themselves so that no one could take the credit for what only God and God alone can do. Uh, a few months ago, we used this analogy of what it's like to live a life embracing faith in Jesus. And one of the best analogies I know uh, comes from a, a sermon from someone else. And I've used it enough times that if I use it two more times, I'll start citing myself as the author of it. Imagine two people go out to walk on ice and, and the first person has this big, bold, courageous faith, but the ice that they're stepping out on is only a quarter of an inch thick. No matter how strong their faith is, once they get out on that ice, they're going to fall through. Now imagine another person is timid and scared and weak, but they step out on the ice that's three foot thick. Weak faith and a strong object will save you. All throughout Scripture, all throughout the story of Gideon, all throughout the Bible, you see this one principle. It is never the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that will save you. It is never the amount of faith that you have, but what you are putting your faith in that truly matters. This is why Jesus tells us, if you have the faith as the size of a grain of mustard seed, you can move mountains. Not because you can tell God whatever to do, but effective faith in the right thing is all that matters. Now, here's why this is so important for you guys. There are some people in this room who have been living a version of faith that you are continually approaching Jesus in such a way that you're not really resting the fullness of your weight on him. And here's a couple of ways that I know uh, that I experienced this, experienced this in my own life. It's when you have unconfessed sin, uh, things in your life that you don't want to confess to anybody else, not to God, not to people in the community, because in a lot of ways you're trying to be strong on your own. So you won't tell people what you're really struggling with. You're trying to fix yourself. And then once you fix yourself, you'll come back and tell people, hey, I was in a rough season a couple months ago, but now it's all good. I don't want anybody to leave here today with unconfessed sin. At the end of service, we have people that would love to pray for you. And you could talk to Lester or Aswan or myself. And we would love to, to, to talk with you about what it looks like to really trust in God, that God is good, that Jesus is a better Savior than you are a sinner to come to God with your weakness and say, Lord, all I have is weakness, but I'm going to put it in your hand and trust that Jesus will do something amazing with that. Secondly, I don't want anyone walking away today with an unclaimed faith. And an unclaimed faith is essentially saying that you are kind of existing in your own ways right now, waiting until you're strong enough 
to get and somehow earn Jesus' love and affection for you, but that day will never happen. But rather to come to Jesus with your weak faith, with your weak life, because somehow God does his best work in weakness. If that's you, I don't, we're not going to put you under pressure to do anything today, uh, but I would love it if you were to fill out a connection card for more information on baptism or email me or speak to Lester or Aswan about what it looks like for you to move and place the little bit of your life, however weak it is, and put it in the hands of the master and watch what Jesus does in your life. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, so many years we've spent with the arithmetic of, our, of ourselves that we have to be strong on our own accord. Help us to see that when we are weak, when we are reliant on you, that's when we can truly be strong. Lord, give us the courage to move in steps of obedience towards you, even when we can't see it all uh, ahead of us. Help us to make practical steps towards you, even if we can't figure it out. Help us to embrace uncertainty. Help us to embrace dependence. Help us to embrace vulnerability. And God, would you show up in our lives? We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.